0: it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at eBayMotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Swinging a drive, right field and deep. That goes Aquino. It's got a
1: chance. Gone.
0: Get out the tape measure, long gone. Fly the W! Cubs fans, it's time to Fly the W with Dustin Rhodes and Paul Crawley-Jean.
1: You're listening to the Fly the W 670 podcast. This is season two, episode number nine. Buck O'Neill, the Cubs' forgotten legend, Welcome to uh, a Sunday with Crowley and I, or whenever you are listening to our podcast. And we want to remind you, as always, don't forget to listen, as you are now. Download it, review it, subscribe, and to fly the W podcast. Also, Crowley, want to mention that we can... Email the show, right? That's something that we encourage all of the listeners to do as well. That way to do that is flythew670 at gmail.com. And don't forget the socials, flythew670 on Twitter, Instagram, and, of course, flythew on Facebook. Crowley, before we get too into uh, episode number nine, um, I have a special countdown. You know how many days away it is to opening day, Crowley?
2: How many days? 53.
1: 53 days until the Cubs opening day so uh that does uh that doesn't seem that far away right now Crowley.
2: you know this Dustin is going to be my 23rd opening day uh or Cubs home opener however you want to put it 23rd
1: um, 23rd Cubs home opener in the year 2023 and we just had uh, Michael Jordan yeah. day earlier this week 2 2323 or Ryan Sandberg day 2 three twenty-three. 23.
2: True fact, though. True fact. In 2020, obviously, everything got shut down and uh, they had the, the shortened 60-game season. And so I'm freaking out. I'm like, oh, my God, I, there's going to be an opening day and I'm not going to be there. And a friend of mine, uh, Tom Warman, and another friend, Stuart McVicker, and my buddy, Danny Rocket, we were lucky enough to get up on a rooftop uh, overlooking for opening day. So we... There goes. It counts.
1: That counts. That
2: counts. There's about... 30 people total on all the rooftops. Like you could count them. And it was so eerie because it was so quiet. But they were playing the Milwaukee Brewers. And I had a lot of beer, as one usually does on opening day. And Ryan Braun came up. And I went on about a five-minute heckling spree, top (laughs) of my lungs. And it is echoing all throughout Lakeview. And it's all about steroids and all sorts of things. And when he was when
1: he was UPS deliveries and things like that, right? all sorts
2: of things. And when, when all of a sudden that when, when they interviewed him after after the home opener, he said, I still can't believe I got heckled when there's no stands in the stands." So that was that was a very proud opening day moment. But I am focused right now. There, there's countdowns. I'm about uh, about what are we at? Uh, the Today is the fifth, sixth. I am about a month away from going out to Mesa. So I'm I'm checking the weather reports. We are, you know, my group, uh, you know, the Club 400 guys and uh, you know guys and gals. We're getting ready. So uh, that's really where my focus is on, man. I cannot wait to get out the desert. Um, I got some friends that are out there taking a lot of great video and a lot of great pictures. Ah, uh, Rich Beasterfield and uh, John, my buddy John Antonoff. They're just taking tons of pictures and video out there, and it just makes me itching to get out there, man. I want to get out of this cold. I want to go out in the desert and I want to watch some baseball.
1: Yeah, good for you, Crowley. I'm I'm envious. You're gonna have a great time out there. Again, this is season two, episode number nine. Buck O'Neill, the Cubs' forgotten legend, and as we uh, celebrate Black Black History Month, we're gonna get into that a little bit in this podcast. But first, Crowley, we thought we'd start by talking about jed hoyer appearing on the show podcast with odyssey baseball insider john hayman and joel sherman also of the new york post and he had some interesting things to say of course as usual about the 2016 team and the current team as well
2: you know i, I gotta tell you dustin i thought it was an interesting interview because it was the most i've ever heard um from jed reflecting about that time that you know that, that how that is uh, you know, that 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 run that the Cubs, the magical run they had, especially 2015 to 2018, you can include 19 and 20, but, you know, I don't know, um, 2015 to 2018, you looked at that, that was the prime years. And it was interesting to kind of hear what he had to say. You know, he was asked about the lessons that he learned and funny to hear Jed say he spent thousands and thousands of hours thinking about it, you know, why they didn't achieve Thousands and thousands. Success.
1: I mean, think about that. That's crazy. Well, thousands I laughed because...
2: I probably have done the exact same thing, right? We all said, <laughs> <laughs> we we all we all said at some point in time, man, that like, oh, we don't want them to be the '85 Bears, but you know, it, it's tough. You know, it is. It, it, one thing Jed mentioned is that when the Cubs won the World Series, FanGraphs had put out some sort of report that the Cubs had the most talent under team control. And you know, when you talk about Jed and Theo, they figured the Cubs would definitely be back in the World Series, at least being in it, maybe not winning it. But having at least a couple trips. And I thought the same thing. I thought when the Cubs played the Indians in 2016, I thought these are two deeply talented teams. Remember, Cleveland was pretty nicked up back then. They had a couple injuries on their pitching staff. Michael Brantley was their center fielder. He was injured. I thought I thought both of the teams were going to return to the World Series. And and I, I was, you know, looking at something similar to what Houston's done the last few years, and it didn't turn out. You know, and so when you talk about some Lessons that Jed learned. Obviously, it's really hard to win and the World Series. And that four-year run was good, but the there's a couple things that made things tough. Obviously, winning the World Series in Chicago was unique. There's no other team that could just say a hundred and eight years. How funny was it, Dustin, that like that Dodgers fans prior to 2020 were crying about having to wait 30 years to yeah, see a world years, series.
1: Poor babies. Yeah. <laughs>
2: you know, but, but I I think what Jed was kind of, you know, saying there is that winning, it was such, I mean, think about it, the fifth largest gathering in human history was that rally. It is just (laughs) such a unique set of circumstances that probably doesn't, it's just, it's a completely different story than anything else. Um, And the other thing he talked about were mistakes the front office has made. He was self-critical about that. He was, you know. But one thing I forget—I think it was Sherman that said it. You know, is that if you, even if you think, take a look at this, right? If you take a look at the best run team, if you could argue about from 2010 till now, oh, let's say 2015 till now. Let's say 2015 to now, the best run team would in all of baseball. You're either going to say the Astros, you're going to say the Dodgers, right? But think about the Dodgers. I mean, yeah, yeah.
1: think think about
2: that. One World Series. That's it. And that was a, that, and and again, that's an asterisk on that. That's a, that's a, that was a 60 game season. You know what I mean? So it it is hard to win the World Series. Now Jed talked a little bit about extensions, working out extensions with the core, and Jed said he approached, they approached every player after that 2016 season, but it was a hard time to sign the guys. I mean, obviously the Cubs, if you think about it, they they you know they weren't. So, they came early. 2015, they kind of blew up out of nowhere, right? they almost four games away from the World Series. And then all of a sudden, 2016 teams. But I feel like that team arrived earlier than people expected. And their success was earlier than people ex- expected. So now they win the World Series, shockingly, in 2016. And now Jed and Theo are going to come around, you know, trying to offer extensions. And I, la- I laughed a little bit about what Jed said. He said they weren't in the mind space, really, for that because they were falling out of bed and making money on card shows and autograph signings, which was absolutely true. He said they were rock stars in the city, and if you remember, they were on every show. They were on Saturday Night Live. They were on Ellen. Uh, later on, David Ross Dancing with the Stars. They were like, and I think uh, uh, Dexter Fowler just said it the other day in Marquee. They were like the Beatles. Right. It
1: was like a year long hangover, Crawley. Basically, it was a it was a year long hangover for that group, and and, and understandably so. But. Right. Uh, I think that would be probably the the biggest regret is to not capture that and try to get that to happen again immediately. But it's understandable because of the length of time and what the city did to embrace it, how you could see them kind of sleepwalking through the following season.
2: Right. And when you talk about those extensions, now every one of those guys thinks they're the greatest thing ever and that, that when the Cubs came and, and said, hey, we offered them – definitely what was fair market value, it didn't really happen. And 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 so these guys are thinking, and, and I'm sure they have agents and everyone telling them you're the best, hold out, this and that. I know for a fact, guys like Addison Russell were offered contracts and then no way they, you know, why would you sign a, you know, think about that Rizzo extension, right? When he signed that, it was 2013, 20, I want to say like 2013, he signs an extension. And then when you look at it later, you're like, ah, oh, that wasn't the greatest deal compared to what I'm producing, okay? And so all these guys think that they're about, you know, no, I'm about to blow up and I'm going to be big, all of them. And 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 they're not going to be sitting there signing these extensions. And then the one thing that Jed mentioned obviously is that with Chris Bryant, they had the grievance that was going on. Remember that took forever.
3: forever. I think it took
2: to get settled. And so you had that going on so you're going to try to, you know, get an extension signed while that grievance is happening. That was tough you know he brought up that you know with Javi they deep in discussions and then covid hit and he wonders say he said hey if covid would have happened a week later the deal may have been done you know what i mean and and once once covid happened and they came back and and you know cuts were ordered to be made then that same deal was not on the table anymore for Javi the one thing though that Jed kind of talked about that he really regrets is is that the deal with Rizzo and Jed kind of said that he learned that he doesn't want to negotiate during spring training. You want to do it before spring training? Fine. But he, he said that they negotiated deep into spring training. It fell apart. He wouldn't do that again. He remembered that like when they came back to Chicago, you know, that's what the first thing the media is talking about and the first press conference Rizzo was having is about the failed extension and just not the way that he wants to start things. Right. Sets a
1: bad tone. Right. It puts everybody on tilt a little bit. Not the way you want to start a new season. That's for sure.
2: And I'll, and I'll tell you something, uh, Dustin, I'm thinking here a little bit, because obviously we've talked about the concept of extensions for Nico and um, for Ian Happ. And so based on what Jed said in this interview, you know, you're you're talking that pitchers and catchers, there's a lot of players already there. Say a Suzuki's already there. I thought you'd like to know that. Uh, uh, from the interview that Jed gave, Cody Bellinger's been there since day one of signing with the Cubs. He's been out in Mesa. Uh, Matt Mervis is out there. PCA is out there. You know, a lot, a lot of, uh, prospects are out there. A lot of veterans are out there. Not everybody's out there. They don't have to report yet. Um, Ben Brown, if you listen to our interview with him, which if you didn't go back and listen to that, he's been out there since November. So the Cubs have kept a lot of their coaches out in Arizona. And so it's, it's to me, one of those things that you take a look at if, if, if you know that that you know spring training starts, does that mean no deal, no extensions for Ian or Nico?
1: Yeah, you got to wonder if he's gonna. I mean, now he's on record of saying it, right? It's it's one thing to to think that that's a possibility, but then when you go on a podcast and people listen to it, and people and ingest it, and then people transcribe and people tweet. I mean, it's out there, right? right? And so yes, it's definitely something that uh, we're gonna have to keep an eye on. And uh, I I agree. I I think try to get the business done before opening day. And after that, try to put it on hold and, and uh, pick it up later on.
2: Right. Or even again, his deadline is spring training starting. So, I mean, we'll see, but you know, obviously it's going to be different for everybody. And if you're really close to a deal, you don't want to, you know, kind of shut it down. But Jed said the overriding thing he learned from the 2016 team, not repeating is that you have to adapt when you're on top. And what he says is there's human nature that once you get to the top, Sometimes you just want to relax and enjoy the view. But Jed said he felt that that was the moment that you have to get back to work. And he said the team chemistry is the fleetingest of things. After the offseason, the team that came back is obviously different. We we talked about Dexter Fowler on the last show leaving to go to St. Louis and some of those things, uh, uh, David Ross retiring. A lot of those guys came back, but it wasn't the same team. And so you cannot bottle up the magic and you need to make changes and move forward. And so he said that the that the front office didn't adapt fast enough or make enough changes to the core group of players. So his biggest takeaway from 2016 is that you got to be changes, you got to make changes and you can't stay stubborn to what you did before, which I thought was interesting.
1: Yeah, let's hope that he gets put in a situation where he has to uh um you know, enact these things that he learned. Let's hope we're in that situation uh again in the not too distant future but yeah i mean it it makes sense but it's hard when you when you accomplish something like they did it's hard to not bring everybody back you see that in sports all the time they bring everybody back and some of these guys aren't uh they 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 left it all out in the field if you will that was as good as they were ever going to get it resulted in the ultimate goal which was the championship Uh, but then you got to kind of cut your losses
2: Right. And now interesting because it, this podcast was taking place with Jed talking to two New York beat writers and they brought up that two of the big trades that were made were with New York teams, Hobby for PCA with the Mets and Rizzo for Kevin Alcantara. And it's kind of funny now because Jed says, look, I've been on both sides of this. Right. You remember when they're when they're trying to make that run, when the Cubs are trying to make that run and they're in desperate need of pitching. You traded Gleybar Torres to get Araldis Chapman to put you over the top, and that worked out. You traded Eloy and uh, Dylan Cease for Jose Quintana. That one didn't work out. So it was interesting because he said, you know, when you have a window, that's why you have those prospects is to trade them to get what you need to win championships. So when it comes to that Gleybar Torres deal, you know, that Gleybar Torres for Araldis Chapman, I don't think there's any Cub fan that really regrets making that deal because you don't win the World Series without Chapman. But at the same time, if you bust, if you don't win it, and now you take a look at, you know, oh, we got Jose Quintana and we gave up Dylan Cease, who could be potentially the Cy Young Award winner this year, and Eloy Jimenez, that's tough. If they would have won a championship with Jose Quintana on that team, or even if they made another World Series, because I don't, think, I don't know if they make it to the postseason in 2017 without the Quintana trade. I know it didn't end up like people wanted it to, but I don't think you make it to the postseason. So I think if the Cubs would have made another World Series, and of course if they would have won it, then I don't think you look as, as badly at the Jose Quintana, for season Jimenez deal, as you do now. But you, you got to win, and so it's going to be interesting with the Yankees. I mean, the Yankees you had, the, you know, you got Kevin Alcantara, who's going to be amazing, and then the other deal was the uh, Hayden Wozniszky. So that's two phenomenal prospects that that. Jed was able to get from Brian Cashman because they're trying to make a run. The Yankees are right there and the Cubs are the ones that kind of get to sit there and, you know, in the driver's seat on these things.
1: Right. And that's the beauty of it, right? That's the beauty of the trade deadline. That's how teams, that's why, that's why Crowley, your point a few minutes ago about, you know, the number of world series that teams have won, despite the fact that they've had sustained success in the Dodgers and the Astros. Right. Um, Right. So we'll have to wait and see those right now. The Cubs look like they're on the, the front end of those trades. There is, uh, there is no doubt about that. And something that uh, John Heyman has said many times, he is a regular on the Mully and Haw show, is uh, you know being critical of payroll. So let's talk about what uh, they talked to Jed about as far as uh, Jed being able to spend, I guess, Tom Ricketts' money.
2: Yeah, you know, payroll was down the last few years and Jed and Tom, uh, you know, they said what John Heyman said, you guys took a lot of arrows. And Jed said, look, he knew when he took the job. Right. Remember, Theo leaves a year early. So Theo knows that their payroll is getting cut big time now at this point. And he felt that it was better that if since he's not moving forward, he shouldn't be the one making the the tough decisions. Right because whoever's next after him has to live with that. And I, I didn't have a problem with Theo leaving a year early. And, I, you know, it made sense to me. Like, look, man, I, I, don't, I don't want to – it's not my place. The next guy that has to do it should be the one that has to make the decisions whether to keep Rizzo, not keep Rizzo, Brian, Bias. So you don't want to saddle the next guy with a giant contract. And you don't want to, you don't want to let everybody walk if you don't have to. So uh, at this point right now here, I'm just kind of looking at this and saying to myself, with, with that payroll – uh, it was interesting because Jed said he knew after the Darvish trade that they would probably have to make midseason trades to bolster the farm system. So that for all of us, we all knew it, but that, that trade of you Darvish, nobody trades an ace when they're trying to legitimately. Right. That win was the domino. The that, that was, that, that
1: was the first domino to fall. It went and, and it was pretty obvious to, to know what was going to, um, what was going to happen after that. But again, so, like that, that's when you talk about the thousands of hours, Crowley. we talked about the thousands of hours spent, thinking what if, what if, what if, and, and that's gonna be the one. It's the Quintana. Like you should have known that you were just not going to be good enough to win it again in twenty seventeen. It just wasn't there. Everybody was exhausted. They were out of gap. As I said, it was a it was a hangover year. And they were they were so talented that they were able to just go through the motions and put themselves in a position to get back to the postseason. But they were not going to win that thing that year. Definitely not with Jose Quintana.
2: But 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 let's look at it this way, Dustin. Is that a you know? Is that take a look at what the Phillies were for most of the season? They were okay. They weren't great. The the, the, the what Jed and Theo have always believed in is you got to get in the postseason, and then anything can happen.
1: Anything can happen,
2: right? And and so you know, I I I don't think they make the postseason without Jose Quintana. I think there were other factors that made Jose Quintana a less effective pitcher than he actually should have been. Talking about juice balls and stuff like that at the time. I, I would say that you, there was a lot of funkiness. I don't know if you remember this, Dustin, but the Cubs—I I feel like they beat the—it uh, was the Cubs and the Nationals in the NLDS in 2017. You, and, and you remember the, the famous Muhammad Ali, the, the Rumble in the Jungle, where you know, where you, you have that this epic boxing match, and neither guy was the same after the fight was over. I think it was kind of the same thing that the Cubs and the uh, Nationals beat the crap out of each other in that NLDS. That went five games and that had a crazy ending. And if you're and and so if you kind of remember that, it, it was really, I think that LA, the Dodgers was the team that the Cubs played in the NLCS second time in a row in 2017. I think that the Cubs were exhausted, not just from the previous season, but they played a hard series against a very, very good Nationals team that had, uh, Matt, you know, Max Scherzer was on there. Uh, you had Steven Strasburg, Anthony Rendon, Bryce Harper. You had some great, great talent, and then and, and 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 the Dodgers just walked right into the NLCS, nice and rested. And then again, don't want to blame Quintana, but if you remember the trip to Washington, they're going back to or they're going from. They play Game Five in Washington. They fly out to LA. They flew everybody on one jet. The, usually, like it's the players, the team is just on one jet, and then like you know everybody else kind of comes on a different plane. But they were all on one plane together. And I think it was Jose Quintana's wife had some sort of medical issue and they had to land the plane. I forget where. I want to say in Nevada. And so they're stuck in Nevada. They got to play the next night in LA, right? And all of a sudden, you know, they're delayed and they're stuck in Nevada and they didn't get in until real late. And it just, it just, that whole NLCS started on the wrong note, I think. And, and so. I, you don't know, I mean, it's easy now to say, well, you shouldn't have done this, shouldn't have done that. You, you needed another starter. John Lackey was absolutely just had nothing left anymore at that point. His career was toast. Uh, you did you needed another pitcher and Quintana uh, looked like the right thing. I don't regret the move at the time. It just didn't pay off. And I think when Jed was talking here and and, and you know, he was talking about the need, to kind of improve, he says great teams, great bar systems like the Dodgers, like the Braves, right? They churn out players all the time. And so that makes the, the off season much simpler. Whereas this offseason, you needed to replace pretty much most of your infield and your center fielder, right? And, and so if you have players that can just step into those roles, it's not as big of a deal. Um, he says that the Cubs, and I thought this was interesting. He believes the Cubs are on the front edge of a very good run of success. And so that to me, spoke volumes, because I've been saying that, and we've been inviting a lot of these young guys on Fly the W, because I truly believe they are. It's right there. These guys are bubbling up, I think this is this year. 2023 is going to be the year that you really start to see some of the flashes of talent that come. And then 2024 is when these guys are going to break the door down in my age. Let's hope so, Crowley.
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance, whether you love true crime or comedy
1: This is Season 2, Episode 9, Buck O'Neill, the Cubs' forgotten legend on the Fly, the W podcast. This is uh, Segment 2 of the podcast, and in this segment, to honor Black History Month, Crawley talks to Bob Kendrick, President of the Negro League Baseball Museum.
2: Joining me now on the Fly, the W podcast, I am honored to be joined by Bob Kendrick, President of the Negro League Baseball Museum. He is the narrator of MLB's newly released animated series, Undeniable, stories from the Negro Leagues, and he hosts one of my favorite podcasts, Black Diamonds. How you doing today, Bob?
3: I'm doing well, man. Thanks so much for having me back on the show.
2: Uh, I'm so excited you're here. This episode is titled Buck O'Neill, the Cubs' Forgotten Legend, because <laughs> I believe that not enough Cub fans know about the importance of the legacy of Buck O'Neill to the game of mm-hmm. baseball but how Buck specifically altered the course of the Chicago Cubs after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. Um, Buck grew up in Florida, and he went to high school and college at Edward Walters College. When did Buck first begin to play
3: baseball? Was it in school or somewhere else? Yeah, no, he was introduced to the game – by his dad at an early age as well. And so he was born in Caribbean, Florida, and then they moved to Sarasota. And that's when Buck really kind of fell in love with baseball as I remember him saying the first time he hit that ball, he was in love with it. And that's kind of how baseball is. The first time you hit it, the first time that ball pops in your mitt, you know, you fall in love with baseball and Buck fell very quickly in love with the game that he would be a part of for the next seven decades of his life. And, or certainly for over 70, 70 years. And the game was just so special to him. And and so, and as he would oftentimes talk about, I made my living in baseball. Yeah. I mean, you can't, it's it's hard to have a bad life when you live, when you make your living doing something that you love.
2: Absolutely. Now Buck leaves Florida in 1934 and begins playing a couple of years of semi-professional barnstorming games. Tell our listeners about those barnstorming experience and what they were all about.
3: Well, for Buck, they were always very interesting and very daring. And, you know, I think he would look back and say, man, I'm still, you know, at that time, lucky to still be here with some of the things that they had to do. But this is how much they loved it. He talked about a team that he played on and they had gotten, uh, I think they called themselves the New York Tigers and none of them had ever been to New York but that's what they called themselves because they thought that name would give them some extra I guess panache. And so anyway, the story ends up with they have this old car where ultimately they would take turns, two of them standing on the, uh, I guess you own this old particular vehicle that had this kind kind of outside platform right around the doors. And he said one would sit out, stand on there because there wasn't enough room for all the guys to get in the car. And so <laughs> one would get get out and they'd hold hands and they'd ride for X number of miles and then they switch up with another two guys. They would do the same thing and, until they made their way. I believe they were headed to Wichita and uh, they ended up in Wichita, Kansas. And that's when he said he first met Satchel Paige, first saw Satchel Paige in the uh, Wichita tournament, the legendary Wichita tournament. And so you know they they got beat handily, uh, but he saw Satchel Paige. But again, the whole barnstorming aspect. Now, once he gets to the Negro Leagues, the barnstorming takes on a whole different meaning, because as you well know, not only were they riding into these small towns, they would play the local town team. Sometimes they, if they were playing, say for here, instance here in Kansas City, the Kansas City Monarchs against St. Louis Stars, they might play here in Kansas City. They may take the stars with them all the way until they got back to St. Louis. But along the way, they may stop and play games against one another in those small towns, or they would compete against the local town teams to earn some more money on en route to whatever city they were going to go play. And, and so some of that barnstorming baseball was just magnificent. And what it did, though, I think more so than anything else, the Negro Leagues, through their barnstorming antics, helped promote this game in towns that we're not going to see major league teams. They were going to see professional baseball really for the first time through these barnstorming games. And and so they played a tremendous role in helping promote this game. Because otherwise, those towns in the middle of nowhere, they could only kind of read about the major leagues. Or if you were in a market that maybe had, you know, a lot of people fell in love with the St. Louis Cardinals because of KMOX. And his radio signal was so strong. But otherwise, you never got to see this up close and personal. And and that's what Barnstorming did. So a lot of fans, and these were a lot of white fans who saw black baseball and they fell in love with these legends of the Negro Leagues who had ridden into their towns to play local town teams.
2: Now, Buck, in 1937, he gets his break. He's signed by the Memphis Red Sox, mm-hmm. one of the original eight founding members of the Negro American Leagues. Um, what was that like? How did he get that big break? Was it with these barnstorming leagues and Satchel Paige, or how did he get his break to get signed by the Memphis Red Sox?
3: Yeah, no, no. He was very fortunate to sign with the Red Sox. And, you know, again, having been around playing, reputation starting to move around now. Everybody's talking about this big first first baseman, big, strong first baseman there that we've been seeing. And so he finally gets his break. He finally gets his break to play in the professional Negro Leagues in 1937 with the Memphis Red Sox. And the brilliance of the Kansas City Monarchs owner, James Leslie Wilkinson, J.L. Wilkinson, or Wilkie, as he was affectionately known, He orchestrated the trade to bring Buck from Memphis over to Kansas City. And interesting enough, you know who takes Buck's roster place in Memphis when he leaves to come to the Kansas City Monarchs? Who's that? The legendary Reese Goose Tatum. Oh, Jesus, Star of the Harlem Globetrotters. (laughs) But Goose Tatum, unbeknownst to a lot of folks, was a two-sport professional star. Yeah, no, he's in the Basketball Hall of Fame and is credited with having invented the, the hook shot. But Boop oh, wow. Tatum was a slick fielding first baseman for the, primarily for the Indianapolis Clowns. But it's certainly there with Memphis uh, that particular season after Buck left. And so they made the trade. Buck comes to Kansas City. He falls in love with Kansas City. Kansas City fell in love with Buck. And as Buck would say, He said, "Of coming to Kansas City, he said, I knew that I was coming to the heart of America. I never knew I was coming to the center of the universe, because (laughs) Kansas City and historic 18th and Vine was indeed the center of the universe. And this is a whole new world for Buck at this point in time."
2: Now, he he, give me a scouting report of Buck O'Neill. For those that don't know, as a player. Again, you mentioned first baseman, but he was a pretty solid hitter, right?
3: Yeah, you know, lost in all of the hoopla around Buck as an ambassador. Because that's what most of us talk about, how he so tirelessly promoted this game. And and, and I don't care if it was youth baseball, high school baseball, sandlot baseball, college baseball. It didn't matter. Buck was wanting to be a part of it. And he did. He promoted this game as tirelessly as anyone ever did. He made these indelible contributions. So many of them were off the field. But I'll never forget it. We're sitting in in 2006. We're sitting in the conference room at the Negro Leagues Museum, and we are waiting the news to see if Buck is going to get into the Hall of Fame. And man, everybody's coming into the conference room. We had Buck held up there in the conference room. He's old in court. And everybody's coming into the conference room, and they're all saying, oh, Buck, you've done so much for this game. You're such a great ambassador. And honestly, I think Buck got a little tired of that ambassador stuff. (laughs) He said, look, I could play, and he could play. He was a great defensive first baseman. I think going to be in everybody's top five defensive first basemans in the Negro Leagues, a clutch line drive hitter with some power. And, and, and he wanted people to know I could play this game. Now, I'm, not, I'm more than just an ambassador. I was a ball player, too. And, and so now, and he really was. And, and you know what? He just seemed to be a natural-born winner and a natural-born leader of men. There's no question about it. You know, as, as Buck went, the Monarchs went. And, and this is with all the extraordinary talent that the Monarchs had. During his tenure, both as a player and as a manager, you know, you go back and look at that 1942 team that he was a star on that ultimately won the Negro League World Series. And they've now four Hall of Famers from that team. Wow. Satchel Page, Hilton Smith, Willard Brown and Buck O'Neill. And there was a second tier of stars that you could make a legitimate case that could have gone into the Hall of Fame, particularly one guy named Ted Strong. And Ted Strong is probably a name that most people who will be listening to your show, they've never heard before. But you should have. Ted Strong, as I say, was Dave Winfield before we ever knew who Dave Winfield was. (laughs) Man, 6'7, 230, 40 pounds, freakish athlete, played every position on the diamond except for pitcher and catcher. He was a 6'7 shortstop. You know, that's how athletic he was with great power, uh, hit for average, five tool guy. And Buck O'Neill says the greatest athlete he ever saw play at that time. And, and, and Buck saw a lot of them play. And and Ted Strong, too, would star for the Harlem Globetrotters. That's the kind of athlete that we're talking about that called the Negro Leagues home. And and Ted Strong was given much consideration to be the first to break the color barrier. Because if you're breaking it down just on baseball tools, Ted Strong had everything you needed. Ted Strong Mm -hmm. had his own personal demons that ultimately, ultimately prevented him from getting to the big show. Yeah, all those guys were there in 1942, and they swept the powerful Homestead Grays. Uh, And I can tell you now, that was no small feat sweeping the Homestead Grays, who had Hall of Famers Buck Leonard and Josh Gibson batting in the middle of a juggernaut offensive lineup. But man, as Buck would say, that 42 Monarchs pitching staff was as good as it gets.
2: And, and and like you said, just his ambassadorship is just, you know, overshadowed. I mean, he hit 288 between 1937 and 1950 he had four 300 plus seasons at the plate. Right. I mean, and, and this is against some some of the best talent available, whether you're talking about Josh Gibson or Cool Papa Bell and even Jackie Robinson. So, you know, he played, like you said, in two Negro World Series, winning it in 1942 he also played in three east west all-star games can you tell our listeners the importance of these games and the connection the east west all-star game had with the city of chicago
3: oh big time big time the east west all-star game is one of the greatest sporting events in american sports history and nobody knows it ever happened (laughs) and it did it happened there in chicago It was established the same year as Major League Baseball's All-Star Game, 1933. And actually, the concept of the East-West All-Star Game really happened before MLB came up with this idea. And I can tell you now, it was unmatched. It was unmatched. Because now, not only are you talking about the creme de la creme, you know, we're talking about the best of the best coming into Chicago's Comiskey Park to play this All-Star Game. It debuted there in in Comiskey, and it really played, they played their all-star game every year in Comiskey. And as I share with my visitors here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, yes, it did outdraw Major League Baseball's all-star game. Man, they were putting over 50,000 people in Chicago's Comiskey Park for the Negro Leagues version of the all-star game. As Buck O'Neill would say, that black folks would come from as far west as Los Angeles by train as far south as New Orleans, as far east as New York, converging on Chicago for this showcase event. I don't know of another sporting event that even compares. I guess now it would be perhaps, well, the Super Bowl and the NBA All-Star where you've got all of this star power and not just people on the field, but all the entertainers were coming to Chicago to be there, all the great jazz stars, All the legendary black comedians and entertainers, they're all there to watch this showcase event. And in in the eyes of so many, if you made the East-West All-Star Game, that was actually more important than playing in the Negro League World Series, man. Because everybody came to see and you came to be seen. Oh, it was a (laughs) showcase event. Oh, man, it would have been
2: amazing to be able to see that. Now, Buck plays for the Monarchs from 37 to 55. There are a few years where Buck served for his country. But in 1948, Buck was named the manager of the Monarchs. He continued to play as well. But tell me about Buck, the manager. For as much as Buck was a great player, some say he may have been an even better manager. What made Buck such a great manager?
3: I think his understanding of men and his ability to relate to them. The great George Altman, who also spent time there playing with the Cubs, who played for Buck in the Negro Leagues, he says of all the managers and George played there with the Cubs, Cardinals, Mets, went overseas, played in Japan, says Buck O'Neill is still the greatest manager he ever played for. And it was that innate ability to understand when to put his arms around you, console you, comfort you, and when to kick you in the rump. <laughs> and, you know, there is that balance. There is that balance. And then just the knowledge that he had of the game, understanding situations, knowing when he installed himself as a pitch hitter, You know, he did that. He would come through in the clutch all the time. But he just had the ability. Buck could have very easily been the first black manager in Major League Baseball history. You know, very easily during that that tenure that he was there with the Cubs. And uh, he just had a complete understanding of the game. And he was able to relate that to his players. They all respected him and they all wanted to play for him. And he just seemed to be out, able to bring out the best in, well, not just the people that he was around on the team, but I saw this throughout the rest of his life. He seemed to bring out the best in all of us. Well, after he was done playing baseball, so you can imagine what it must have been like playing for him.
2: Yeah, and and, and you know, listening to your podcast, the Black Diamond podcast, and listening to your episode on Ernie Banks, Uh, this was a quote directly from Ernie. Just follow Buck O'Neill. This man is a leader. He's a genius. He understands people. He understands life. He will keep this going. He never gives up on situations he believes in. He's not discouraged about any of this. He believes he came along at the right time and is doing the right thing. He started the Negro League Museum in Kansas City. That was his goal, his mission, and many people resented that. But he stayed on course with his situations. All of us should learn from this man. So that's Ernie Banks on the leadership of Buck O'Neill. Yeah, yeah. just unreal. And I actually have this podcast or this bobblehead here. I'm just describing it to my leaders. <laughs> this is, my, this is right here. It's 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 my Buck O'Neill bobblehead, and he's got the lineup card got right the lineup there.
3: Card, yeah.
2: And 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 you know, just absolutely, um, you know, just I think about that about how many people. What you know, you're talking about George Altman.
3: Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu.
1: This is the Fly the W670 podcast. This is season two. It is episode number nine. We're calling this one Buck O'Neill, the Cubs' forgotten legend. We don't want you to forget to listen, download, review, and most importantly, subscribe to The Fly, The W Podcast. Segment three, we continue our conversation about the Negro Leagues and about Jackie Robinson and the end of the Negro Leagues.
2: Now, on April ni- April fifteenth, 1947, Jackie Robinson, at age 28, becomes the first African-American player in Major League Baseball's modern era when he steps onto Ebbets Field in Brooklyn to compete for the Brooklyn Dodgers. How did Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier affect the Negro Leagues?
3: Well, you know, it's really interesting, even as you look at this jersey over this shoulder, the KNC. That's the 1945 Kansas City Monarch jersey. Jackie is here in Kansas City in 1945 playing for the Monarchs, which a lot of baseball fans to this day don't know. You know, I think people think that Jackie's Jackie just walked out of nowhere and started playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers. But his real rookie season was here in Kansas City in 1945. And he spent all of five months with the great Kansas City Monarchs. The legendary Hilton Smith, one of the greatest pitchers of all time, unsung because he was oftentimes on the same team with Satchel Paige, and was gonna overshadow almost any and everybody. Hilton Smith had recommended Jackie Robinson to the Monarch's owner, J.L. Wilkinson. He had seen him playing military ball when Jackie was stationed at Fort Hood. And when Jackie is court-martial from the U.S. Army, he wins his court-martial case, and he's honorably discharged, he writes to J.L. Wilkinson and asks for a tryout. Well, they try him out in Houston, Texas. He makes the team. And as I say in my podcast, Black Diamonds, little did J.L. Wilkinson know, he had just signed a man that was going to put him out of business because five months later, Jackie was gone. And I got to know several of his teammates from that 45 season before they passed away. And when Jackie came to the Monarchs, there was no real fanfare in and around him. He was just another ball player trying to make The monarchs team and quite frankly had the monarchs had their full roster intact see so many of their stars were serving in world war ii i don't know if jackie would have ever been invited to play for the monarchs wow and how would history have been altered yeah and and so by the end of the 45 season jackie is gone you know they didn't know where he was he had literally disappeared well, as we know, he was meeting with Branch Rickey, where the two of them would make the epic decision that he would be the chosen one to break Major League Baseball's self-imposed, six-decade-long color barrier. And there's no question that Jackie's breaking of the color barrier signaled the beginning, but also the end. It was the beginning of social progress in this country, but it also spelled the demise of the Negro Leagues because after he breaks the color barrier, this now opens the door for other black and brown athletes to now flow into Major League Baseball. And there was no replenishing system. So it was not a matter of if, it was simply a matter of when the Negro Leagues were going to have to shut its doors. And so for that Negro League owner, thanks to Effa Manley, who owned the Newark Eagles, they started selling their star talent to the Major Leagues just trying to get whatever they could get before the business of black baseball died. J.O. Wilkinson, who owned the Kansas City Monarchs, never got, as my mother would say, not one red cent for a man who was under contract. Branch Rickey didn't sign Jackie Robinson away from the Kansas City Monarchs. Branch Rickey took Jackie Robinson away from the Kansas City Monarchs. Yeah, and and yeah, no, it's, it's such an amazing story in itself. I tell people, you can do a scripted TV series just off of what transpired leading up to Jackie being the guy as baseball was starting to explore integration and all the back and forth, and you don't know who to believe, and everybody's coming out, and they've all got their own motives behind them, but ultimately, thanks to Al Happy Chandler, And Branch Ricky, who I still say to this day orchestrated that move. Yeah, they orchestrated that move. Yeah. Because (laughs) what Ricky was shrewd enough to know was that the commissioner had the unilateral power to overturn the owner's vote, a power that Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis had installed for himself when they hired him after the Black Sox scandal or to, to rule over the Black Sox scandal. And it would be that same installation of power that would ultimately break the owner's hearts and have a black man playing in the major leagues (laughs) because Chandler overturned the owner's vote. And Ricky, I believe, had a, a backroom handshake with Chandler that said, hey, if the owners vote against this, will you overturn it? He says, yes, I will. And he lived up to his word. And he did just that. And that's how we get Jackie Robinson. But you're right it absolutely did it, it it was the beginning of the demise of the Negro Leagues i think a lot of negro league teams thought that they might become kind of a feeder system a, a a pseudo minor league of sort for some major league teams but that the major leagues were never going to do that they already had their own minor league systems in place and, and so yeah those black owners knew they had no they essentially had no choice you just it was like a fire sale, and then you think about this: they were getting Hall of Fame talent, man, for pennies on the dollar. <laughs> you know, you go get while while J. L. Wilkinson never got paid for Jackie Robinson. When Bill Vett came to get Larry Doby from the New York Eagles, Mrs. Manley wasn't going to just. He came offering five thousand dollars, and Mrs. Manley would write back to him, says, "Mr. Vett, Now, you know, if Larry Doby was white, he'd be worth over $100,000. But if you think this $5,000 sum is fair, I guess I have no choice because she knew too that she was not going to be able to fight these major league owners off. You see, blood was in the water and the sharks were coming. And so she says, I have no choice but to accept this. And Bill Vec, who had a heart for this, Bill Veck writes back and says, "Okay, I will give you an additional $5,000. So he raised the ante to $10,000. And I will give Larry a $5,000 signing bonus if he makes the team. $15,000 for a future Hall of Famer. Unreal. (laughs) Yeah. And then they were getting these other players for about the same sum. Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, Ernie Banks. You know, they were getting about the same amount of money for guys who would become Hall of Fame players. But those yeah. Negro League owners were stuck between that proverbial rock and a hard place. So it's either sell or they were going they were going to go anyway. So you're going to lose this commodity no matter what. And, and so they just kind of created a fire sale, tried to groom as many young stars as they could in hopes that they could sell them to the major leagues. And then the Negro Leagues would cease operations in 1960. Right. Boston would become the last team to integrate in 59. And so, and so
2: Buck sees the writing on the wall, right? He sees the writing on the wall. And when the Monarchs were sold at the end of the 1955 season, he resigns and Cubs general manager Wid Matthews hires O'Neill as a scout after the, um, you know, he was tasked with, you know, scouting black high school and colleges and then the Negro leagues for talent. And one of the players that we're going to talk about next time you and I talk a young shortstop named Ernie Banks. And <laughs> boy, oh boy, that, that, like I said, I, I, we were going to talk about it today and there's just so much to talk about with Buck. We couldn't get it in. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to kind of continue this conversation with you. And, and, and next time we talk, we'll definitely talk about Ernie Banks. But I do want to talk a little bit about what you got going on right now. You have a couple of different things going on. Tell us about this new animated series that MLB has just put out.
3: Man, I, I couldn't be more prouder of something that the museum had had a role in helping develop as I am with the new animated short series called Undeniable Stories from the Negro Leagues. This has been about two years in the making where the museum has partnered with Major League Baseball, uh, an animate, two animation firms called Invisible Collective and Martian Blueberry to try and find a way to connect with a new generation. And and I've said this on many occasions, it is important for any museum, particularly a history museum, and even more so a cultural institution like the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is that you try to establish relevancy. How can I connect to an ever-changing generation of young people? As you well know, Negro Leagues Baseball hadn't been played in over six decades. And so it's easy for a kid to say, oh, that was then, this is now. I've got to show them how now relates to then. And in some ways, then is, is but as, as close to being now as ever before. And so this story really does resonate on so many different levels. But I cannot wait for them to come to me. <laughs> I've got to go to them. And I have to go to them in the modes and mediums in which they are accustomed to getting that information. So to be part of this animated series, to try and engage young people around the history of the Negro Leagues and and generate greater interest is something that we always thought would be meaningful and and relevant. And to, to see this first one released that we did on February 1st, subsequently one coming on February 8th, and the last of the three on, I believe, February 15th is really exciting. And based on the reaction that we've seen on social media, everybody is feeling what we've done with this series. The first one, as you know, was dedicated around the women of the Negro Leagues, and that's eye-opening for so many people.
2: It really is. And I encourage everybody to check it out. It, it, it's just such a great project. And not only that, right now, you also have, you know, the Negro League Museum is always open. I know that our friends, uh, Levante Stewart and the Lost Boys, came yes. out last summer and had an absolute blast. And it, it, if you are a baseball fan in general, you, you know, it, it just needs to be. A, a stop in understanding the history of the game. And so, you know, it, open, you know, you're open right now, you're open during the season and, and it is mm-hmm. just an absolutely wonderful place to go. And, and for people, especially young people, like you said, trying to reach young people and showing them this history is just really important. Oh, it, it
3: absolutely is. It's important on a number of levels. This is a forgotten piece of baseball and American history. So it's not in the pages, of American history books. The moral majority of us have gone through our long formal educations without knowing one of the most significant chapters, not in baseball history, but in American history. So these cultural institutions fill the gap that was the void from history books. American historians basically deliberately ignored this piece of history. So this is a brand new history for virtually everyone who is in, who encounters it. But just as important as the museum is as an educational resource. It's the inspiration that comes from this story that may be just as meaningful. You know, when our kids walk into the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, this is really their first introduction to a segregated America. And to a child, to a child, they all kind of summarize segregation very simply that was dumb, and they're (laughs) right. It was dumb, but it was the way that this country was. And it's important for us as parents, as educators, as community leaders to empower our young people to take us where we still yet need to go in the future. We still have a lot of work to do in this country as it relates to race relations. And if they're going to be the ones that bear the responsibility of doing this, they have to understand that life hasn't always been as good as it is for some of its citizens today. So the look on their faces when you learn that you could go to jail for sitting in the wrong section of a ballpark, going to jail for drinking out of the wrong water fountain and using the wrong restroom. And quite frankly going to jail with some of the good things that happened to people. A lot of people lost their lives for breaking those simple societal standards. So what we've attempted to do at the Negro Leagues Museum is take very complex subject matter. Segregation. It is difficult for us as an adult to understand, no less our children, and try to simplify it by telling it through the eyes of these courageous athletes. So by the time they walk away from this experience, I think what they walk away understanding is that what the Negro Leagues teaches us is really simple. In this great country of ours, If you dare to dream and you believe in yourself, man, you can do it. be anything you want to be. Now they dared to dream of playing baseball. They had no idea that they were making history. They didn't care about making history. They just wanted to play ball. But that's the spirit that drives the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And this month, Our friends over at the Kansas City Royals and Royals Charities have made the museum available free of charge to any and everyone who wants to visit. And I have just absolutely, my heart is overjoyed when I see families coming intact, passing this history down, sharing this story from generation to generation. That is what makes it so special for me but it's, a, it's just such an amazing story because they didn't cry about the social injustice. This is not a woe is mine kind of story. No, no, no. These athletes went out and did something about it. You won't let me play with you in the major leagues. OK, I'll create a league of my own. Yeah. And what's not to love about a story like that? Because that is the American way.
2: Absolutely. And, and, you know, I just want to thank you, Bob, for hopping on and telling us all this people again, can follow you on Twitter. Uh, what your Twitter handle again is. It's M- at
3: NLBmprez, prez same username for Instagram as well. And if you want to follow the museum is NLBM, uh, museum, uh, K C. Uh, Absolutely. Uh-huh.
2: And, and, and again, the other story, the other episodes of Undeniable are going to be coming out and you have the podcast Black Diamonds. Yeah. Bob, you know, I just think about everything that you and, and the late great Buck O'Neill did to, to make this museum a reality. And, and it's just so great. And that's why I wanted to have you on. And, and, and thank you so much for popping on.
3: No, I appreciate it, man. It's uh, it's an honor for me to kind of receive the baton from Buck and to walk in his enormous footsteps you can't feel his shoes you'll be naive to think that you could feel his shoes but it's just an honor to even walk in his footsteps to try and keep something alive that he was so passionate about and that was the Negro Leagues baseball museum and so i thank everyone who continues to support us along this journey and you know is we're having a good time doing this as well so You know, it's just a lot. It's a lot of fun for all of us. It's a labor of love for all of us who are involved with this project.
2: Well, thank you again, Bob, and we'll be talking to you soon. And uh, as
3: always, appreciate your time. Oh, anytime. Thanks for having me.
2: Well, that's a wrap. Season 2,
1: Episode 9 is in the books. Buck O'Neill, the Cubs' forgotten legend. Crowley, 53 days until opening day, and I know you've got your countdown on for spring training as pitchers and catchers are already, uh, not officially, but they're already getting together out west, out in the desert, out in Arizona, which is also home of the Super Bowl this year. So a lot of uh, of celebrities and a lot of uh, athletes uh, hanging out in Arizona the next couple weeks.
2: What's the Super Bowl?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: I, sorry,
1: uh, we uh, can't. Po- here, Car- here, Carly, here Here's a, when you text me on Saturday night or Sunday morning. Hey, can we podcast Sunday? The answer is <laughs> no. Okay, big fat capital N O. Okay, so there's no. There will be no recording. Maybe on Saturday if it was during the day, but there will be no recording Saturday night. And there'll be no recording on Sunday, possibly Monday. But we'll have a couple podcasts for you between uh, now and the
2: Super Bowl. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, FlytheW670, on Fly on Facebook at Flythew, or you can email us at flythew670 at gmail.com and go cubs.
0: It's all over.